happy to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to James chapter 5. If you're new with us this morning, welcome. Glad you're here. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, know that we're glad to have you with us. If you are new with us, you should know that we are making our way through a series on the book of James. This morning, that means we've landed in James chapter 5. One of the reasons why we preach through books of the Bible here at Fremont E. Free is we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and as much as possible, we want the Word of God to set the agenda. And sometimes that means we come to hard passages. Today's passage is one of those, both the content and the tone is somewhat challenging, but we're confident that God has us in this passage for a reason. So I'm going to pray and ask that God would be gracious to us and speak to us through his word. So Father, we just want to pause here. Let me just pray for our students. Now we just want to pray for those who are in this room. And we want to ask that you would help us to be ready to hear from your word. This is a challenging passage. There's no two ways about it. There's certainly a tone that James has as he's being inspired by your spirit that is convicting and challenging. And we pray that we would have ears to hear. But at the end of the day, we also pray that we would be encouraged, that it's worth following you and it's worth following what your word says. And so give us a conviction this morning that your word is more precious than gold or silver. Help us to see it as the treasure that it is so that we would hear it and receive it and live by it. God, we are asking for your help this morning because we know that we're weak. We know that there are some who've walked into this room this morning with all kinds of distractions in their life. We pray that in the midst of that, you would just speak. Oh Lord, speak to us this morning. Give us your word. Help us to be both comforted, encouraged, challenged. Help us to see your word for what it is, your word. And help us to receive it as the treasure that it is. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, according to one study, between 2008 and 2021, 379 people worldwide died while attempting to take a selfie picture of themselves. Most of these selfie deaths were instances of people aiming to get an extreme selfie in which they would put themselves in dangerous situations and attempt to get the perfect picture for social media. These selfie deaths have included falls from the tops of mountains, cliff sides, tall buildings. Others have been swept away by strong water currents, electrocuted, hit by trains, even attacked by wild animals. And tragically, many, if not most of these deaths were completely preventable. In fact, in many cases, those who died ignored clear warning signs in the area of danger. For example, in the last several years, there have been multiple selfie deaths at the famed Diamond Bay Reserve in Sydney, Australia. Because of its gorgeous cliffs, the Diamond Bay Reserve is a popular place for tourists and selfie enthusiasts. But it's also an extraordinarily dangerous place, which is why local authorities have built a fence around the cliffs and posted signs everywhere warning of the unstable nature of these particular cliffs. And yet, and yet, despite the fences, despite the signs, tourists regularly climb over the fence, ignore the signs, and take selfies at the risk of their own lives. And for at least a few, it's cost them their life. Sadly, though, this phenomenon of ignoring warning signs is not something that's limited or restricted to Diamond Bay Reserve. Many of the selfie deaths that have taken place in the last several years have come about as a result of people completely ignoring warning signs that were clearly posted next to waterfalls, bridges, cliffs, wildlife areas. In light of that, while every single one of these deaths no doubt has been tragic, it's hard not to shake your head at the needlessness of the deaths. If people just would have paid attention to the warning signs, they could be alive. But sadly, they didn't, and it cost them everything. But listen, as easy as it might be be for us to critique reckless selfie takers, and it is easy to critique them, I wonder if sometimes we're all that different. Granted, few of us would probably climb fences and ignore warning signs in order to get a perfect selfie. But like reckless selfie takers, we too have a tendency to ignore warning signs. 
It's just the warning signs that we tend to ignore are not those posted next to cliffs, but rather those that we find in the Word of God. Throughout the Bible, there are warnings everywhere about spiritual danger. And oftentimes, we fail to take those warnings seriously, or in some cases, we just flat out ignore them. And I would argue that in the end, ignoring the warning signs in Scripture is actually far more dangerous than climbing a fence, ignoring signs, and posing next to a deadly cliff. Because here's the thing, the warnings given in the Bible don't just pertain to our physical safety. Most of the time, the warnings that are in Scripture are connected to our eternal destiny. And thus, when we ignore the clear warning signs in the Bible, there's far more at stake than just falling off a cliff. We're putting ourselves, in some cases, in eternal danger when we ignore the clear warning signs of Scripture. I think that's worth keeping in mind this morning, because in James 5, verses 1 to 6, James offers a very serious warning. In James 5, verses 1 to 6, James implicitly warns of the dangers of riches and wealth. And in doing so, he minces no words. If you were to sign um, an emoji to this passage, there is no doubt it would be the fire emoji. Because in James 5, 1 to 6, James is spitting fire. He's giving a warning here that is stark and startling, and in the end, I would argue, even terrifying. But here's my prayer for us this morning. My prayer is that we would see the warning signs, and rather than ignoring it, we would take heed. There's a reason why this particular passage is in the Word of God. And given the relative affluence, by that I mean wealth, that almost all of us possess, at least in comparison to other Christians throughout history, I suspect that James's warning this morning about the danger of riches and wealth is one that we desperately need to hear and pay attention to, lest we run the risk of falling off our own spiritual cliff. So that said, let's get to it. James 5, 1 to 6. If you would, please stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word. Just going to warn you ahead of time, this, this is a hard passage. James is very direct here. So James 5, 1 to 6, the words will be on the screen. You can follow along that way, or you can listen as I read, or you can follow along in your own Bibles. But the word of God says this, beginning in verse 1. Come now. You rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. It's the word of God. You may be seated. So here's the interesting thing about our passage this morning. Despite the fact that the book of James is written to believers scattered throughout different regions, which is what we learned back in chapter 1. In James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, the passage that we just read, it seems almost certain here that James is talking about non-believing rich people, which seems a bit out of step with his intended audience. Now, no doubt, throughout the book of James, James has offered plenty of exhortations and even condemnations. But almost always, those exhortations and condemnations have taken place in the context of a call to repentance, which again makes sense given that his intended audience is the church. As an example, in last week's passage, James certainly had some harsh comments for those who are making plans apart from God's sovereignty. He called those types of people arrogant and even referred to their boasting as evil. But even still, in last week's passage, there is an implied exhortation to repent. In verse 15 of chapter 4, James instructed those that he was correcting to live a different way. 
which again makes perfect sense if his intended audience is the church. But in today's passage, there is no such call to repentance. Instead, in verse 1, James simply tells the rich to weep and to howl for the miseries that are coming their way. That language of weeping and howling is language used by the prophets in the Old Testament in the context of judgment. More specifically, weeping and howling were frequently used by the Old Testament prophets to describe the reaction the wicked will have when they encounter the justice of God on the day of judgment. So when James tells the rich to weep and howl about the miseries that are coming their way, he's not talking about some earthly suffering that might be headed in their direction. Rather, as the context makes clear, and the rest of the verses will certainly make this clear, he's talking about condemnation that the rich will face on the day of judgment. And he does so without any hint of exhortation. In verse 1, James is not calling the rich to repent. He's simply telling them to lament the judgment that is coming their way. And then in the rest of the passage, he goes on to lay out why they should be afraid of the misery that they're going to face. Or he goes on to lay out the case as to why they will face misery. And the reason why they will face misery is not simply because they're rich. James does not condemn the rich for being rich. Rather, his condemnation is based upon the way in which they were acquiring their wealth, the way in which they were using their wealth, and the way in which they were thinking about their wealth. As the rest of the passage makes clear, the rich that James is addressing here were hoarding their wealth. They were using their wealth to exploit others, and they were using their wealth solely for selfish gain. Rather than seeing their wealth and money as a gift from God to be used for the glory of God and the benefit of others, those that James is addressing were using their wealth for their own selfish purposes. Hence the harsh condemnation of this passage. Now, having said that, here's the big question then regarding James 5, 1 to 6. If James is addressing the church in the book of James, why does he include this section, which seems to be so clearly addressed to rich non-believers? What is the purpose of addressing a group of people that's not a part of the intended audience? Well, it seems that the answer to that question is that James is using a rhetorical device here in which he addresses a group of people that were not present for the benefit of those that are present. The Old Testament prophets did this all the time too. They would use a similar tactic when they would pronounce doom on a pagan nation that was not present, and they would do so for the benefit of those who were listening. So in light of that rhetorical device then, the follow-up question I think we need to ask this morning is simply this. What benefit does James want the church to get from his condemnation of rich people. What does he want us to learn from this harsh condemnation? Now the truth is, I think there are probably multiple answers to that question. Given the persecution and suffering that the first century church faced, which would often come at the hands of rich people, it's likely that James includes this section at least in part to actually encourage the church, as strange as that may sound. He wanted to encourage the church that God's justice is coming. The rich will not get away with their shenanigans forever. And therefore, the early church does not need to envy the wealth of the rich, nor do they need to be afraid of what the rich can do to them. I think, I think this section, at least in part, was meant to encourage a church that was suffering and facing persecution. But I also think that this passage is meant to be a bit of a warning too, especially to those in the church that might have possessed wealth. By addressing the wealthy in such a harsh and direct manner, James is indirectly warning the rest of us about the way we think about our own wealth. Or to paraphrase Bible scholar Alec Moyer, James shows us the pit that we might not fall into it ourselves. And it's that aspect of the passage, the warning aspect, that I want us to focus on for the rest of our time together this morning. 
I want us to consider the implied warnings that James gives to the rich in this passage. Because let's be honest here, compared to most Christians throughout history, and compared to most Christians even around the globe today, we are as a whole an incredibly wealthy people. Now, I understand that some in this room have more money than others, but relatively speaking, again, compared to those throughout history and compared to those around the globe, we are an incredibly rich group of people. And so James's condemnation here, his warnings about riches should get our attention. It should serve as a warning sign to us that hopefully, hopefully keeps us from falling off the cliff. So again, let me be clear, I think James is addressing rich non-believers in this passage, but he's doing so for the benefit of those in the church, which would include us. And one of those benefits is the implied warnings about the danger of riches. So to that end, in, respond to James, in response to James' condemnation of the wealthy in James 5, 1 to 6, there are three warning questions I want to ask us this morning. Those warning questions are designed to get at how close are we getting to the cliff. So three warning questions... And then after that, three exhortations in light of those warning questions, right? So that's the plan here. So three questions and three exhortations. So warning question number one, are you storing up treasure on earth? Are you storing up treasure on earth? Again, the issue with the wealthy in James 5, 1 to 6 is not that they were wealthy. The issue is the way in which they were acquiring their wealth, the way in which they were using their wealth, the way in which they were thinking about their wealth. Or as one 19th century pastor more broadly put it, there is no sin in merely being rich. Where sin exists among the rich, it arises from the manner in which wealth is acquired, the spirit which it engenders in the heart, and the way in which it's used. In other words, the problem here, and we see this not just in James, but throughout Scripture, is not wealth. The problem is the way that the wealth was acquired or used or the way that it was thought about. And that reality is obvious in James' condemnation in verses 1 to 6. As you read the passage, it becomes clear that the wealthy people James is addressing were using their money in the wrong ways. And they were acquiring their money in the wrong ways, and they were thinking about their money in the wrong ways too. And one of the evidences of their wrong thinking is that they were storing up treasure on earth rather than storing up treasure in heaven. We see this in the first three verses of the passage, verses 1 to 3. James says this, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Now the language that James uses, in particular in verses 2 to 3, is reminiscent of language that Jesus uses in Matthew 6, the passage that we read earlier. In that Matthew 6 passage, Jesus describes the fragile and temporary nature of treasure on this earth. And in Matthew 6, he talks about how moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal the things of this earth. James picks up on that language here in verses 2 and 3, but he uses it in a somewhat surprising way. In verse 3, he describes gold and silver as rusting. That's actually the Greek word would lend itself towards rusting, although it's translated here as corroding. He uses that same language to describe gold and silver as rusting or corroding, which is not something you would expect to hear of gold or silver. But actually, I think this is the point. I actually, I think James uses the language in reference to gold or silver to make a point. And his point is that even non-corruptible metals like gold or silver become corrupted in God's eyes when they're being used in the wrong way. And clearly, the rich in James 5 are using their wealth in the wrong way. They are hoarding their wealth 
Rather than being generous with others and using their wealth to advance the kingdom of God, they are storing up treasure here on earth. Like the parable of the rich fool who builds these storehouses only to have his life taken. This is exactly what they're doing. As James puts it, they are storing up treasure or riches in the last days. Last days here is simply a reference to the point of time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And the point is that the wealthy were storing up treasure for themselves as if Jesus was not going to come again. They were living as if their life on, on earth would last forever. And that mentality, James warns, will be exposed on the day of judgment. Or as James so vividly puts it in verse 3, Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Now listen, I don't know about you, but one of my life goals is not to have my flesh eaten like fire. So to that end, the warning question again this morning is simply this, are you storing up treasure on earth? In 2022, 26 of the world's 2,668 billionaires died. Among those who died last year, the co-founder of Red Bull, an orange juice tycoon, and an Italian eyewear mogul. Of the 22 billionaires who died last year, the net worth of those individuals ranged anywhere between $1.1 billion and $24.8 billion. In their lifetime, these billionaires lived lives of extravagance, or at least many of them did, I would presume most, lived lives of extravagance and great luxury. They resided in lavish homes. They experienced amazing things. They possessed incredible material goods. But you know what every single one of them has in common now? They are dead, and their possessions mean nothing. Now, to be fair, I have no idea where any of these people were spiritually, so I'm not making any statements about their eternal destiny. I hope they knew Jesus. I'm simply telling you this, though. Whatever money and possessions and experience they acquired on this, on this earth meant absolutely nothing on the day that they died. The only thing that matters is whether they knew Jesus Christ. And the same will be true for you. Listen, if you are storing up treasure on earth, if you are trying to keep up with the Joneses, if you are trying to accumulate stuff, then you are missing the big picture. Our life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. Rather, what matters is do we know Christ? And are we living for him? So are you storing up treasure on earth? If so, take heed. Because as James reminds us here, storing up treasure on earth does not end well. So that's the first warning question. Are you storing up treasure on earth? Warning question number two. Has money become more important to you than caring about others and doing the right thing? Has money become more important to you than caring about others or doing the right thing? Look again at verse four here. Verse four says this. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So in verse four, the issue is that the wealthy were exploiting their labors. They were using their power and their influence as an excuse not to treat their labors fairly, to not give them what they were actually owed. They were using their leverage and power, in other words, to defraud those under their leadership. We see the exact same type of thing happening in verse 6. Verse 6 says this, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. 
Now, this language of murder is a little bit mysterious here. It seems likely, though, that James is referring to ways in which the rich were finding ways to take land from the poor. And in taking land from the poor, likely by taking them to court and using their influence in court, they were robbing the poor of their provision. And in doing so, they condemned the poor to a life of poverty and even in some cases starvation, hence murder. And there's nothing that the press could do to stop this, which is what James refers to at the end. There's nothing they could do to stop this heinous behavior because they did not have the power or the influence. In other words, what we're saying in light of verse 4, verse four and verse 6 is this. The rich were so consumed with money that they were willing to defraud others of their wages, steal their land, and in essence, sentence them to death. And here's the thing, they were getting away with it. But the problem for the rich is that God knows their evil tactics. As verse 4 puts it, even the wages themselves, inanimate objects, are crying out against the rich. More significantly, as the end of verse 4 tells us, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. That terminology of God as Lord of the hosts is terminology that reminds us that God has an angel of armies at his disposal. That's what hosts mean, armies. And thus the imagery here is of a God that has all the power at his disposal. And one day he will use that power to defend the oppressed and to punish the oppressors. One day he will carry out justice. But because the rich don't understand this, or because they don't believe this, they continue to oppress and defraud on the earth. In my hometown, there was a businessman that was quite successful in his business. He also happened to be a leader in a local church and a man who was prominent in many community organizations. But sadly, he was perhaps best known, at least by some, for his unethical and shady business practices. He was known to be a cheat, a fraud, excuse me, a fraud, a liar. In the end, it seemed that he cared more about money than he did about what was doing right or about other people. But here's my question. Are you like that businessman? Is that you? In the modern economy, if you want to get to the top of the chain, and if you want to make a lot of money, you oftentimes have to be willing to sacrifice your morality or bend your convictions just a little bit and perhaps even defraud others or treat them poorly in order to advance your own cause. Now, of course, I would like to hope that there's no one in this church who would sacrifice their morality or their ethics or their treatment of people for a few more dollars. But given the lure of money and given the power that comes with it, I suspect that there are probably some, if not many, in this room who have been willing to do just that, to sacrifice their convictions, to sacrifice their morality, to treat others a little bit poorly or a little bit more poorly in order that they can rise up the rung of the corporate ladder or make a little bit more money. But listen, if that's you, again, take heed. Because as James reminds us in this passage, making money more important than people or your convictions does not end well. So that's the second warning question. Has money become more important to you than caring about others or doing what's right? Warning question number three. Is your use of money evidence of self-indulgence? This is verse five. Verse five says this. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Now, as is often the case in the book of James, James uses a vivid illustration to make his point in verse 5. He compares the rich to livestock headed to the slaughter. Now, as Nebraskans, this is an illustration that we're probably more equipped to understand than those living in, say, New York City. We get that on the farm, you fatten up your livestock so that when you take the livestock to market, you're able to generate more profit and ultimately feed more people. The livestock, however, as you may know if you've ever been on a farm, are not aware of the system. 
right? They eat and they eat and they fatten themselves up completely unaware of the fact that they're fattening themselves up for the day of slaughter. And James's point in verse 5 is that this is what the rich are like. They're fattening themselves up on self-indulgence and luxury, not realizing that the day of slaughter, or in this case, the day of judgment is coming. Now, to be clear, and I think this is important that we say this, because there is a ditch on the other side here. I don't think that James is condemning the enjoyment of God's creation here. I don't think James is concerned about the person who buys an ice cream cone or goes on a vacation with their family or buys a nice Christmas gift for someone that they love. I think the person that James is concerned about here is a person whose life is marked by a pattern of self-indulgence and luxury. Again, in that way, I would say this. James's words here call to mind the teaching of Jesus. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Maybe you're familiar with the story. In the story, Lazarus lived a lifetime here on earth of difficulty. In his time here on earth, he longed to be fed with the scraps that fell from the rich man's table because Lazarus was poor and destitute. But in the story, the rich man does nothing about it. Instead, on the earth, we're told that the rich man was clothed in purple and fine linen. He feasted sumptuously every day. In other words, if we were to use language of James 5, the rich man in Luke 16 lived a life of self-indulgence and luxury. And if you're familiar with that story in Luke 16, you know that it does not end well for the rich man. In the end of this story, he's cast into a place of punishment where he longs for any measure of comfort but can find none. On this earth, he lived a life of luxury and self-indulgence. But in the end, his eternal destiny was one of torment. And in light of that story, and in light of James' teaching, the sobering question again is simply this. Is this how we are living? Are we living a life of self-indulgence and luxury? Now in James 5, James doesn't tell us at what point we cross over the threshold into self-indulgence and luxury. And, there's some, and so in that way, there's some ambiguity here that probably makes us a little bit uncomfortable. At what point do we have too much? James doesn't tell us. And I think that's actually purposeful because if we knew where the line was, we'd probably say, okay, just tell me where the line is and I'll go right there. But for James, it's not the issue of where's the threshold. The issue is our hearts. Is our fundamental disposition oriented towards self or is our fundamental disposition oriented towards God and others? Now, one of the tricks of this particular part of the passage is that it's always easier to look at others and accuse them of being self-indulgent than it is to see it in yourself. In fact, anytime someone spends more money than we probably would, we typically assume, oh, that person must be self-indulgent. In some cases, that might be true. But I don't think the point of the passage here is that we would become this self-indulgent police towards others. The point is to evaluate our own hearts and ask the question, is our use of money evidence of self-indulgence? This is an important question because, again, as James would indicate in this passage, it does not end well for those who neglect to love others. So that's the third warning question here. Is your use of money evidence of self-indulgence? Now, having asked those questions, let's just be honest here. These are some really heavy questions. They are sobering even. And unless you've mastered your finances or you're just not paying attention this morning, chances are at some level this passage is at least mildly convicting, if not seriously convicting, maybe even discouraging. But as is always the case, I don't think we're meant to wallow in response to reading this passage. I don't think we're meant to read this and go, oh no, I'm doomed. No, rather, I think we're meant to take action here. 
We're meant to respond. As the church, the purpose for us of this passage is to repent. If we're walking in the wrong way, to turn the other way and come back. And so again, the way I want to end this morning is just by giving you three quick exhortations here in light of the implied warnings. So exhortation number one is simply this. Store up treasure in heaven, not on earth. In other words, I'm calling you to invest your resources wisely. I think, generally speaking, we all understand how investments work. You invest your money in the real estate or stock market or a mutual fund or a bank account or a business venture. And the hope is that over time, that investment multiplies and you actually end up making more money. As an example, with interest rates being what they are, we recently moved some money of ours from a checking account to a CD at the bank, a certificate of deposit. And the idea is that we're setting aside this money, which we can't touch for a little while, with the hope that when we take it out because of interest rates, it will be bigger. Now, I understand that there are other investments that are much bigger than a CD, but that's not the point. The point I'm simply making is how investments work. When we invest, what we do is we sacrifice now because we believe in the end that sacrifice will lead to more benefits. In other words, we invest now, we reap later. And in light of James' teaching here, and for that matter, Jesus' teaching, my encouragement to you this morning is simply this, invest your money well. And by that, I don't mean invest in a CD or invest in a retirement account. That's not what I'm saying. There's some wisdom in that, and there's certainly some benefit to getting a 5 or 10% return on something. But more specifically, what I'm saying is this, invest your money in a way that will yield something eternally. In other words, what I'm calling you to do is to think bigger. Invest your money in eternity. As author Randy Alcorn puts it, you can send your treasure ahead of you to heaven. Instead of hoarding wealth here, look for ways to build up equity in heaven. Now, how do we do that? That leads to exhortation number two. What does it mean to store up treasure in heaven? Exhortation number two is this. Use your money to bless others and advance the kingdom of God. I think if we're trying to say, how do we store up treasure? I would say in heaven. I would say it's use your money to bless others and advance the kingdom of God. In James 5, again, the primary issue seems to be that the wealthy are using their money in selfish ways. They're acquiring their money in selfish ways. They're thinking about their money in selfish ways. But listen, when we are thinking about money only through the lens of what it means for us, we're thinking about money in the wrong way. If all money belongs to God, which by the way, it does, then we are called to be stewards or overseers of God's money. We are to invest the money in a way that would bring glory to God and reflect his heart, which primarily I think means that we should use our money to bless others and advance the kingdom. Now again, I want to be careful here because I don't want to go too far in the ditch on the other side. Again, I think it's okay and good even for us to enjoy God's creation. There is absolutely nothing wrong with enjoying a good cheeseburger or going on a great family vacation. In fact, I would commend both of those things to you. So I'm not saying we can't enjoy God's creation. What I'm saying, though, is this. Is our fundamental disposition one of self-indulgence, or is it one that is outward and upward-looking? Or say more simply, we should be generous with our money towards others and generous with our money in advancing the kingdom of God. We are stewards of God's money. It's not ours, it's His. And we should use our money in a way that reflects His purposes. And we should do so knowing that one day we will give an account to God. Which brings me to the third and final exhortation. Remember that there is a judge in heaven. For my money, no pun intended, the most sobering part of this passage occurs in verse 4. Look at what verse 4 says one more time. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. When you're rich and powerful, 
There's a sense that you can get away with anything and no one will ever be able to stop you or do anything about it. As an example, there was a video clip that circulated last year of a well-known college football coach. This particular coach is the head coach at one of the preeminent college football programs in all the United States. He's rich, he's powerful, he has all kinds of influence. And in the video clip, a stadium worker is trying to keep him and the team from going out of the tunnel too early. He's trying to do his job, probably for television reasons, maybe there's something going on at the game. He's trying to keep them from going out of the tunnel too early, and the coach just lets him have it. You don't even have to have the sound on to tell he is talking in harsh and profane ways. He is just ripping the guy. Now, this stadium guy, given what we know of stadium guys, probably doesn't make much money. He was just trying to do his job, and yet this coach, who has all this power, decided he was going to treat him like a piece of dirt. Now, I'm sure the coach didn't know he was on video. I'm sure he didn't know that this would be broadcast far and wide on social media, but that's actually kind of the point. I suspect that this coach acts this way all the time. It's just that this time, he was caught on video. When you're rich and influential and in a position of power, you think you can do whatever you want and no one will ever be able to stop you. But hear this and hear this clearly. He knows. The God of angel armies sees and he knows. And one day, he will execute justice. And for those that do not know Christ, that idea should be absolutely terrifying. He knows He knows. But the good news is, he's provided a way for you to be rescued. If you'll turn to Jesus Christ in saving faith, you can be saved. He may see and he may know, but if you turn to Christ, you can be rescued from your sins. So if that's you today and you've never turned to Christ, let me plead with you, turn to Jesus Christ for the salvation of your sin because he already knows all of your sin. Just confess it to him and run to Christ where you can find forgiveness. And for those of us who are already in Christ, the good news is this, that because of Jesus' work on the cross, we will not face the justice of God. Jesus already took the punishment for us. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, he secured forgiveness and guaranteed no condemnation for those who are his people. For those who turn to him in saving faith, the righteousness of Christ is credited to their account. Which means this, that if we are Christians, we do not have to be terrified about the coming justice of God. Christ has already took the punishment for us. So when we read verse 4, if we're Christians, we shouldn't be terrified. Rather, we should be filled with gratitude. We should be filled with gratitude knowing we do not have to worry about facing the justice of God. And we should want to live in a way that then reflects the salvation that we've received We should want to live in a way that reflects the way he has treated us. God has been generous to us in sending his son to die for our sins. We should strive to reflect that generosity in the way we treat others, including in the way that we use our money. To be a blessing to others just like he's been a blessing to us. So listen, in James 5, 1 to 6, James seems to be addressing rich non-believers. And in that way, the passage does seem slightly irrelevant to those in the church But again, I think he's addressing the rich for the benefit of those who are in the church. I think what he's trying to do is both encourage and warn us. The Holy Spirit is trying to encourage us and remind us that we don't need to be envious of the rich or be afraid of what they can do. But it's also meant to warn us. Like the sign that's posted on the cliff, it's meant to keep us from danger. And if you're a Christian and you have the Spirit, which if you're a Christian you do have the Spirit, then you will pay attention to the signs. Instead of storing up treasure on earth, you'll instead store up treasure in heaven. Instead of of loving money more than you love people or more than you love doing the right thing, you'll instead use your money to be a blessing to others, 
and to advance the kingdom of God. Instead of pursuing a self-indulgent lifestyle, you'll remember there's a judge in heaven, and you'll want to use your money in a way that reflects his character and brings glory to his name. Hear this, at the end of the day, all money is his money. So let's use his money to highlight his goodness and to be a blessing to those around us. Let's be generous to others as he's been generous to us. And let's live in a way that brings glory to his name. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we admit this is a challenging passage. It's convicting. But Lord, I pray that we would have ears to hear this morning, especially knowing the world that we live in, knowing that compared to other Christians throughout history and around the globe today, we have so much more wealth. I pray that we would see the warning signs this morning and that we would avoid going over the cliff. But I also pray that knowing that we are in Christ, that we would have great gratitude this morning and that we would recognize that we don't have to be afraid of all these great warnings that we see here in James 5, but instead we can just be thankful that Jesus paid the punishment for us. And that that would in turn then motivate us to stay away from the cliff. That this would motivate us to live differently and to use our money for the blessing of others and for the good of your kingdom. Oh God, please help us. We need it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you can stand now for the benediction. It's going to come from Numbers chapter 6 this morning. And while you're standing, just one last announcement. Today is the second Sunday of the month, which means it is a benevolent offering Sunday. We have our normal offering baskets here in the sanctuary, but we have a, a basket that's placed out in the foyer for a benevolent offering. This is an offering for anyone in the church who's just struggling financially that we can help. If that's you, by the way, if you're struggling financially, just know it would be our joy to be able to help you even this week. Let us know. All right, so Numbers chapter 6 says this, and this will be our benediction today. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You're dismissed. Have a great week.